Hello, this is Elias Windrider, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Well, almost never. All right, all right, I listen to it. it it's like a spice addiction. Once you start down on the dark path forever, we'll dominate your destiny. This is Death MVP, and I would never listen to the Order 66 podcast as my R2 is too busy downloading porn. <laughs> Execute Order 66. Happy late Father's Day, everybody. This is Monday, June the 16th, 2008. Welcome back to the Order 66 podcast, episode number 22. Deuce, deuce. Deuce followed by deuce. deuce. Double deuce. You know what I'm saying. I'm GM Dave. What is up, Gamer Nation? I am GM Chris. Sorry about getting the cast to you late this week, guys. Evil forces conspired over the weekend to keep GM Dave and myself apart, you know, and... um. I was a little heartbroken, Dave. That's not true. Just a smidge. Yeah. No, <laughs> no Father's Day basically uh, put a kink in it for me and um, other stuff for you. So it was just uh, it was just one of those things, just family type stuff. So, you know, real life intervenes every once in a while. And the important thing is that it's Monday and we're doing the cast. Word. Word. And we got a good cast to do, too, man. We've been anxiously waiting to talk about Threats of the Galaxy. Just kind of gush over it, really. Go through some of the, the highlights that we've enjoyed in this uh, fine supplement. Indeed. And uh, got a few other things to talk about, too, man. Well, how are you, Dave? How you been? Good. I'm tired. Yeah, man. 16, you sound tired. I'm tired. 16 screaming 11- and 12-year-old girls over for my daughter's 12th birthday party. Her whole soccer team basically came over, and so we were up till like four in the morning. I want my Wiimotes back, dude. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. And I borrowed them, and I forgot to take them to your work this morning. Yes, you did, I w- dude. I will put out a bounty. I will seriously. I'll call the exchange. I'll do whatever. I will. Yeah, I want my Wiimotes back, dude. I can't play Mario Kart without my Wiimotes. It's called Death MVP. He sounds like Mike Tyson. Uh, Death MVP sounds cool. He sounds like the kind of guy that would like break your legs for fifty bucks that's and then right. roll dice, tell you how he's going to do it. <laughs> awesome the awesome guy awesome guy <laughs> oh yeah awesome. i wish my r2 would download porn mine tried to but then he got a virus <laughs> well you know they have uh treatments for that now yeah i know it's a personal problem i know sorry don't yeah mean, don't mean to bring yeah, it up most definitely. <laughs> well what do you say we move on to our show dave what do you say we start with i don't know maybe a couple of announcements here and there like some special news? Uh, I don't know. Would we call it news? Or would I we... guess. All right. More announcements. In yeah, that case, we'll, we'll fire off this sucker right here. Sweet. There we go. Yeah, it's not really news, but I really like that uh, that bed. So, uh, hey, dude. Uh, you know, I, I just got my fourth edition books in a little while ago for D&D. And uh, I'm Jones into play, you know, but uh, I haven't quite gotten a game group together yet. And so I'm, I'm really wanting to live vicariously 
through you know some fine uh, geeky gamers out there like myself that you know just might be willing to you know share their fourth edition experience with the world. Do you know, Dave, of, of a place where I can I can do that, where I can Let get that vicarious me feeling? Think about that for a second. Um, nope, sure don't. Uh, local uh, friendly Damn. gaming store. Oh no 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 no. Never mind. How about d20radio.com? Ah, Radio Free Hamlet. Radio Free Hamlet, yes. Um, our sister cast, Radio Free Hamlet, uh, which of course is devoted to solely to 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons, has just gotten their third adventure up. It is live and uh, ready for you to download. And you can go right to d20radio.com and click on the Hamlet link and uh, get right to it and download all that juicy goodness it's just spectacular really great episode have you i don't know if you've heard it yet dave but i um, have not i was in birmingham all week last week i know and uh it, it's uh yeah, it's it's really good they they really delve into uh some character creation and a lot of really good, just good questions it was a shorter episode than their previous ones but honestly in my opinion one of their best good um i think they did a marvelous job with it i would so. hope it'd be one of their best being that they only have three well, yeah, we, you know, and that's the thing. They get better each time. So exponentially, like, like with us, you know, like like this, like, okay, and let's take time. Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, this podcast that you're about to hear, it's it's going to be funny, okay, and it's going to be useful. It's not going to be the best show we've done. Oh, great. Worst show ever. It's, it's just, no, 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 and not the worst show ever. I think download episode one if they want to hear that. But, but you know, uh, you know it, it, it'll be good. Just, you know, not not the best ever. Not the best ever. Okay. Let us know. Anyway, head over to d20radio.com and uh, check it out. And uh, more beautiful announcements. Dave, there is another supplement coming out. It officially releases tomorrow, June 17th. And this is the Star Wars Saga Edition GM screen. Indeed. And I'm a fan of GM screens. I I really, I I don't use mine currently because, frankly, I just got tired of how tall it was. It's an old second edition D&D screen I have. Um, you know, to hide your dice rolls and whatnot and have all those pertinent stats on the back. But I'm so excited because this screen is actually in, in landscape view. So it's really, really like long and not too tall. So you can actually see your players. Isn't that amazing? That's great. I've, I've heard that it's like uh, the size of a, of a whiteboard. It's I wonder if I understand it's pretty freaking big. And it's made of it's about as hard as a whiteboard too. It's apparently it's made from the, the heavy duty stock they make the book covers out of. So it's unrealistically amazing. But we happen to have some uh, interesting information about what exactly is going to be on the Saga Edition GM screen <laughs> and uh, determine whether or not it's going to be useful for you. Um, you know, basically, you know, on the back there's, there's all the tables for a GM to have, you know, easy reference. But these tables and all the information on the back of the screen will include um, stats for objects. And substances, okay? So if you're trying to sunder something or, or break it, paper, rock, glass, ice, Scissors. things like that. Hmm? Scissors. Scissors, yeah. <sighs> no. Cow manure. Cow manure, maybe. Probably not, no. There's tables for restricted objects. Um, not too use, you know, useful in most campaigns, but you know, whatever's going to be restricted. Weapon ranges are really, really good stuff. Um, actions in combat. Combat modifiers, like what you get from like cover and concealment, prone, all that. Um, condition track. Vehicle actions. 
um, size modifiers in space, vehicle weapon ranges, which are really awesome. And I actually think to me the most useful thing is going to be sample skill DCs. It'll have like sample skill DCs for climbing check, you know, like climb checks, deception, stuff like that. So you can just see on the fly what kind of what they're going to need without to check your book. Um, and another thing that really excites me, average skill bonuses for NPCs. So like if, you're, if the party hires a slicer or a locksmith, how good are they? What's their average skill bonus going to be? And what would you charge for said skill bonus? Um, you know, attitude steps, perception, computer attitudes, gather information, treat injury, um, force powers, XP awards, and the cone shapes that are going to be drawn out on a square grid, uh, which is one thing that's not in the core rulebook, and it's, as they say, oh, reference the, the cone shapes in 3.5 D&D. Well, if you don't have those books, you're SOL, so the cone shapes are going to be on there for you. There's all kinds of really wicked stuff that's going to be on this, so it's a good thing. Go out and pick it up. I've already got mine on pre-order. So. Yup. Very cool. And I guess there's one last announcement, uh, Senor Villegas. Yep. Uh, Senor, Senor Motojito. I am going to be at Gen Con this year. Ooh. Um, yeah. uh, it is very exciting and good stuff. And um, I didn't think I was going to get to go, but my wife is awesome. So <laughs> we're going to get to go. And uh, I will be GMing four sessions of Star Wars there. If any of you guys are going to make it up to Gen Con and you want to register for a game and you would like to know my schedule, Friday from 1 to 6, I will be GMing slot 6 of The Betrayal of Darth Revan. Uh, Saturday from 8 to 1, uh, I will be uh, GMing slot 9 of The Betrayal of Darth Revan. And then I will also be GMing two slots of The Rebel Run, which is the Star Wars Delve. Thursday from 7 to midnight, which is slot 3. And Saturday from 1 to 6, which is slot 10. And uh, hey, sign up. Maybe I'll even get to meet some of you fools out That's there right. that uh, I would very much like to meet. That's right. So. You'll be laying down the law because I'm Ooh. the lawbringer. I am, the, I am the law. Do my terrible uh, Sylvester Stallone impression. And, oh, you know. my gosh. I, I, I am the law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, spiffy stuff. Spiffy stuff. Well, Dave, I will say, um, as late as it was last night, I, I did find time, even in the dark, to swing by my post office box. And uh, checked to see if I had any mail. I had a lot over the weekend, and buried there within the you know you know imperial bills and uh, you know the junk mail from Soros Sub after I signed all those mailing list uh, things. Um, I did happen to get a postcard from Commander Ooh. Cody. Well, you'll have to tell me about this. Right, here, check check it out. It it's kind of wet. It, it here well. Uh, this this is kind of a moist sheet of, of laminate paper, and it's a very a very pretty oceanic blue, um, and it's got an imprint of a, a coastal cityscape on it, and it's it's very round letters proclaim, "It's no trap. Welcome to the beauty of Mon Calamari." It's a trap. From across the galaxy, it's time for postcards from Commander Cody. GM Dave and GM Chris. I'm very pleased that my squad is accompanying the Emperor this week to the watery world of Mon Calmari. It's work, true, but this place is a great spot to relax, even in uniform. A lot of tourists come to this world, but there's only a few oceans. Well, they're really big. (laughs) 
and in them is a few islands for the tourists to stay on. Most of the planet here is just covered in beautiful crystal clear water. And believe me, seafood is fantastic. Just don't ask what it is you're eating. The Emperor is here to attempt diplomatic relations with the surface aliens, the Mong Calmari. Though they live on the surface, they're aquatic too. Half live under the waves. They haven't appeared too receptive to the Empire of late, and I think the Great Emperor is here to rectify that situation. What's strange is that he'd also hope to gain the favor of the other species native to Mong Calamari, the Quarren. These aquatic beings rarely reach the surface and apparently live in large, air-filled cities at the bottom of the ocean. Sounds like a security risk to me. Now, the two races have always been against each other, and the Emperor assumed that with the Moncals unhappy with them, the Quarren would throw their support behind the Empire. Their response, though, has been one of extreme isolationism. They don't want anything to do with anyone. Ah, if you ask me, we should just blast all the non-humans off this world. Underwater or no, send them into oblivion. Clear this beautiful place away for some proper Imperial tourism. Well, I gotta go. Walk on my tan. You guys get a chance? Make it out to Mon Calamari. Long live the Empire! Your friend, Commander Cody. Great. Now we've got uh, Cody advocating a Holocaust. Well... I wouldn't quite say that, you know, but it's, you know, I think, you know, he was just, you know, euphemism, you know, I believe is the term, you know, he doesn't really want to kill all those, you know, Mon Calamari and Korra, and he, you know, probably just a relocation, you know, since they're clearly not managing the planet's resources right, properly. Right, yeah, and, blast and can, all those non-humans into oblivion. Yeah, I read that out of that. Oh, you know, no, it's just, you know, I, you know, that's probably one of those Mandalorian sayings, you know, that that means, you know, give them all back rubs or, you know, fruit baskets. Yeah, sure. Blast them into oblivion, yeah. Right, absolutely. uh, It's really good to hear from you, Cody. Um, And uh, thank you for the postcard. It'll go right up here on the wall. You suck. (sighs) Well, what do you say we get to some real mail, Dave? Down with the Empire. Uh, Okay, sure. While I'm busy. While I'm busy uh, toiling a bit, okay. All right, scumbag, pay attention. It's time for mail call. We got one letter, Dave. Yeah, well, we got a couple, but yeah, and we had one like seven-minute voicemail, and uh, it, which you know I can't play a seven-minute voicemail, unfortunately. But the good news is he wrote to us too. Yes, he did, and that's very wonderful. Um, actually, uh, um, Elias Winrunner, Winrunner, who um. He is actually a large poster over on Watsi and uh, has just recently joined our forums and sent us a nice little, uh, a nice little uh, bumper at the beginning of the show. He wrote us asking a very complex question, which I will uh, hope we have some answer to. He has asked us, Dave, to help him pimp his ride. Yeah. And uh, he says, Dear GM Dave and GM Chris, uh, when I was four years old and someone asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I answered, make planes. And in real life, I do have the equivalent of the Starship designer feat. So given that personal interest, it's pretty, pretty easy to guess that I love the Starships of the Galaxy book, and I'm looking into Pimp My Ride. Okay. Well, we're, let's do it. Um, but first, he says, in keeping with the Pimp part, Twi'lek Goodnesses, I never listened to the Order 66 podcast shout-out, was awesome. I'm kind of curious if she looks like her voice sounds. And in keeping with the ride part, TK421 knowing about Wrigley Field is not inconsistent. After all, you frequently take a ride on your freighter to go see Watto on Tatooine. Um, okay. Well, I, I, you know, honestly, Elias, um, I contract my Tatooine trips out to local smugglers. I mean, um, merchant transport ships. Right, right, right. 
Um, it's a really great tax write-off. And um, Twi'let Goodness is as hot as her voice sounds. Um, trust me on that one. Uh, well, uh, back to his question. Right. I'm looking, to, I'm looking to design a luxury racing star yacht from the ground up, including an in, external internal, th- internal 3D digital model. And while I love Starships of the Galaxy, I was a little disappointed when I first got it because there wasn't a colossal transport in the game with enough emplacement points to do what I wanted to without it being used. All that changed when I got Threats of the Galaxy, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, which, by the way, is a completely awesome book. Um, under Smuggler is listed a wonderful ship, the Corellian Engineering Corps, VCX-350, which easily has the best stats in the game so far for any colossal-sized ship. Uh, basically, it's an expensive colossal freighter with 250 tons of cargo space, and while Threats of the Galaxy doesn't indicate one way or another, Wikipedia says it has staterooms instead of bunks, which implies me to me that passenger quarters uh, and the basic luxury upgrade. After trading in 150 tons of cargo for 30 emplacement points, I have enough EP to make the ship I want without it being used. So I'm just going to use the VCX-350 stats and change the fluff to say it looks like something else. Okay, that's your call, homie. Uh, The VCX, guys, is on page 89 of Threats of the Galaxy, and it is indeed an excellent cargo ship, though hellishly expensive. As for the Wikipedia thing, dude, it's a great resource, um, but I don't let it add mechanics to my shizzle. Uh, granted, a luxury upgrade, uh, it's just kind of fluff, but it's expensive fluff. So, again, your call. He continues. Now, since this is going to be a racing yacht, I want to maximize speed, and the prototype template is an absolutely wonderful way to do this. So wonderful, in fact, that I'm having some doubts about whether I applied the rules correctly, and I'd like your opinion on it. I start by selling off the stock sublight drive and installing one that can move five squares, starship scale. This is the fastest you can install on a colossal ship. Then I apply the prototype template to increase the speed by one, choose to have two random benefits and two random drawbacks, and I just happen to roll to increase the speed by one square for both of the random benefits. Uh, This gives the ship a speed of eight squares, starship, and then I use the increase vehicle speed application of the tech specialist feat to increase the speed by a quarter of its current total, i.e. two squares, which brings me to a grand total of ten square starship scale speed. Throw the full throttle talent on top of that, and it will have no problem winning pretty much any race it's entered in, hands down. This is so brotastically wonderful, I'm having a little trouble believing it follows Raw. I'd like your opinion on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's where it starts to get fuzzy, dude. There are some Raw issues. Namely, technically, the prototype template, which is on page 123 of the Starships of the Galaxy book, would have to be added before you started selling off and replacing parts of a ship. Um just by necessity the ship is created and as part of its creation it gains that template then you can start monkeying with it so as such uh, you have to work with the vcx's base speed of four squares and the prototype template would increase that okay now as far as the drawbacks and benefits go as a gm there is no i happen to roll this and this all right but if you did manage to roll one square speed increases for both random benefits that would bump you to six squares starship scale Okay, that is for the existing hyperdrive on a prototype VCX six squares. Now, at that point, once that's done, you want to rip it out and put in a five square one. Be my guest. (laughs) But um, working with your six square speed prototype VCX using the tech specialist feat to increase vehicle speed would bump it up a quarter of its speed or seven point five squares. Well, seven squares since we round down. So seven squares would be the base speed of your ship after all the modification. Now, 
I want to point this out. Seven squares is fast, man. It is really, really fast. That is, I think, possibly one of the fastest, if not the fastest ship of size in the galaxy. But it's not Broke-tastic. Ten squares? That's Broke-tastic. What, honestly, what I'd love to see, is, Dave, is, is this concept applied to a six-square ship, like a Starfighter. After the prototype template um, and, and your lucky rolls, you'd be at nine squares. Then tech specials would bump it up to 11 squares per raw. That is a racing ship. But it's kind of like a sports car. You know, there's only room for one, not much else. Yeah. As for the full throttle talent, which is covered on page 207 of the core rulebook, honestly, it's a great talent. No racer should be without it. To clarify for our listeners, full throttle lets you take 10 on pilot checks when you want to increase your vehicle's speed, which is listed on the pilot skill. Uh, it's a DC 20 check, and it gives you one square of speed until the end of your next turn. And honestly, if you've got skill-focused pilot and you're trained in pilot, which I hope to God any racer would be, you can take 10 and just automatically do this. No big deal. Um, full throttle also lets you increase your all-out movement from four times your base speed to five times your base speed um, in one round. That's not bad at all. Um, he continues with his question. He says, here's a secondary question about the prototype template. How many credits do you think applying the prototype template should cost? The book only lists the cost to remove the prototype template, which would be a quarter million credits in this case. Personally, um, Elias, I would treat the removal like a sale of parts. Okay, As such, the purchase should be double the cost, um, which kind of makes sense to me. So I honestly, I think half a million credits on top of what the ship actually costs is pretty damn good to have a ship, quote-unquote, lovingly hand-built by a team of engineers, um, <laughs> which is not bad. He continues and says, one other question. I'd like to give the ship a droid AI, a la Rami from Starship Andromeda great show by the way uh that can fly and defend itself um i'll even be going for the replica droid thanks again threats of the galaxy and holographic avatars now the rules don't exactly cover this directly but they come pretty close i'm looking for your opinion of this being legal i'd accomplish this by adding advanced slave circuits recall slave circuits remote processors and remote receivers installed in the pilot and the gunner etc for me this is kind of a toss-up but i'm leaning on the side of it being allowable under raw i'd like your opinion all right dude i think it's perfectly within raw it'd just be expensive as hell um, you'd need a replica droid out of Threats of the Galaxy, page 152, with a remote receiver, which would cost you just under 9 million credits um, on its own. Uh, the ship itself could easily have a remote processor in it, but by raw, the processor could not control the ship directly. It would need another droid, um, or our Rami replica, at the helm. Okay, And that goes the same for gunner positions on the ship. Uh, and both Rami and the other gunners would take the requisite minus two penalty to dexterity for remote processors. Now, Elias continues and said, also, since droids with remote processors controlled by the same, excuse me, droids with remote receivers controlled by the same remote processors can synchronize fire and such, would the gunner droid remote receivers be considered the pilot in terms of the penalty they take while dogfighting, performing maneuvers, flying defensively, etc.? No, dude, they wouldn't. No more than human pilots and gunners with comm links would be considered the same entity. Um, also, he says, I'd like to remove one of two escape pods that are on this ship um, <clears throat> to gain five emplacement points and add a small lifeboat, which costs ten emplacement points for this ship. Now, the text under the small lifeboat says you can only install them on a colossal frigate and larger ships, but the table on the previous page says colossal and larger. So which is it? The golden rule, my friend, text always trumps table. So there is no lifeboat for your VCX. Uh, as per uh, the errata and the ruling, 
um, in terms of text always trumping the tables. Um, you can only install a lifeboat on a colossal frigate or larger, which is uh, means it's not going to fit on the VCX. So sad. So sad. He continues, after the ship has been completely automated, would it be within RAW to add the number of crew to the number of passengers? Since crew quarters and passenger quarters are both staterooms on the VCX-350 anyway, after which I'd zero the number of crew so it wouldn't be double counted, or should I just zero the crew and not add it to the passengers? Okay, per RAW, dude, there's no staterooms on that ship. You made them staterooms. <laughs> but uh, the crew is not passengers per raw. You wouldn't zero them out. They'd be there. They would have crew quarters in addition to any staterooms you put on there for passengers per raw. And he says, I think all the other mods I intend to make are clearly within raw, so I don't have any questions about them at the moment. So GM Chris and GM Dave, thanks for helping me to pimp my ride. Once she's ready, I'll be heading to the second start of the right and straight on until morning. Keep them dice a-rollin', Elias Windrider. That's quite a long email. Yep. And then you got to take it to Jesse James to get it painted. Dude, that would be awesome. Yep. I would I say Boyd. Uh, I would doubt. say Boyd Coddington, but he passed away, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, he did. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Well, dude, I hope you get your shit pimped out. I hope it works out well for you. I hope uh, our uh, surly answers, advice, and suggestions are taken with the grain of salt with which they're due. That's right. Yes. Lots of salt. Now, if you guys want to send us any of your questions, um, hopefully they won't be that long. <laughs> but they can be. We will answer them. Uh, you're welcome to email them to us at uh, gmchris at d20radio.com or gmdave at d20radio.com. You guys can sign up uh, f- as a, to be a member of our forums at d20radio.com slash forums where you can join the Gamer Nation and get your thoughts heard. Or, Dave, what else can they do to contact us? Call the loser line. Lusa line, 206-600-LUSA, L-U-S-A. That's right. Just don't leave like a seven-minute voicemail because I can't. About a minute and a half is about as long as we can realistically play without causing everybody to like skip on their iPods. <laughs> but thank you, Elias. He, I actually asked him. I said, you know, he emailed me. I was like, hey, dude, post this up. You know, call us. And he did call us. So thank you, dude. And your bumper's awesome. We really do appreciate it. And you guys can call us as well at 206-600-5872, the loser line, and leave us your I Never Listen to the Order 66 podcast bumpers um, or any other sundry insults or uh, taunts or uh, praises that you'd like to give. That's right. That's right. Because that's the way we roll. Yes, that's how we roll. At d20radio.com. That's oh, yeah. right. <laughs> so what do you say? You think it's time to suspend some rules? Mm, definitely time to suspend some rules. All right. Chancellor, request a motion to suspend the rules. You're gonna suspend the rules? Shut up, Shut up. Motion granted. Cool. Oh, hey, shout out, by the way. Yo. Now that the secret's out that we know Twee, that goodness, she was the one that recorded that um, bumper, or that, uh, that line in the uh, suspend the rules. Yes, she she did the Padme voice, and that was uh, very well done. 
And I got to give myself props for uh, for my Jar Jar impersonation. I think I did pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Considering you and hate also him. huge shout out and thank you to the Emperor for dropping by to do that for us as well. The Emperor, of course. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. Punk ass. Hey. Well, Dave, let's talk about some house rules, shall we? Okay. And obviously, uh, for those of you who listen to the show, uh, one of our newer segments, Suspending the Rules, covers house rules. Um, a lot of people have some great stuff they've added to the game, some altering the existing rules, some brand new stuff altogether. And if you guys have anything you want to add uh, for Suspending the Rules and get it shared with everyone else, head over to our forums at d20radio.com forums. And in the uh, Order 66 request forum, you can find a thread directly for suspending sticky. the rules. Yep. A sticky, sticky thread. And you can uh, post up your home <laughs> rules. Get them on there. Uh-huh. Uh, well, there's two house rules we're going to share this week. Um, one is rather fun, and the other can be deathly serious. Now, as to which is which, I will leave that up to you. <laughs> what is our first house rule that we're going to discuss, Dave? Cheaters. Cheaters? Cheaters. Cheating at the che- Savic table, my friend. Ooh, I think it was who was it suggested this? Seiko? Was it who suggested? It was. Yep. Nice. Now you know that like gambling is like a, a sidebar that's in the core rule book, um, right there in the smug- next to the smuggler. Or excuse me, the scoundrel. Scoundrel, yeah. And he suggested adding another little sidebar just beneath that one. Um, to allow a skillful character to cheat at certain games of chance. And I thought this was just a great idea. Um just adding a lot of fun and allowing you to use your skills in a really unique way. Um, as he puts it, uh, you can bluff or deceive an opposing player, um, obviously when you're playing gambling against another. Um, he allows his players to roll a deception check versus the opponent's will defense to gain a plus two cheat bonus to that player's gambling check. And he also allows allies to aid another uh, through the use of the same check. Um, now, for those who like to palm cards or switch dice, he suggests a stealth check versus a will defense, which could be used for the plus two bonus. Um, why will defense? He says, well, because it's easy. It follows KISS. Yep. I, I love love that I started an acronym, dude. That's it. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Of course, KISS, which is the uh, general principle rule of uh, Saga design. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, and, of course, will defense is a measure of someone's mental awareness, which I think is pretty, pretty right on. Um, what's your take on this, Dave? It's all right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's one of those things where I don't like messing with raw when it comes to this sort of thing, unless we're kind of running a little bit of a darker tone campaign. I suppose we could use it. Yeah, it's not a problem. So I mean, oh, I, yeah, I, I suppose I see, I see what you're saying. Personally, I like it. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, or rather deadly, um, if you get caught with it, which could make it even more fun. Yep. Um, I mean, because think about it, if you try to make this check and you fail, I mean, all of a sudden you're accused of cheating. It could add a new level of depth. Plus, if you're looking for uh, a good skillful, skillful way to add, you know, yeah. more juice to your encounters, I think it's a it, it's it's a neat thing to do. It's a neat thing to do. Now, in our campaign currently, I mean, we have a, a Twi'lek noble that with a gambling addiction. So... God forbid if we introduce this rule into our campaign. <laughs> Heaven forbid, I'll tell you what. Then the destruction of droids will be the least of her problems. <laughs> well, what is our second house rule we're going to share today? Uh, we're going to be talking about dark side point removal from Shubuda. From Shubuda. Uh, now this this kind of hits close to home with you, man. You've you've played some some uh, dark side walk-in Tingen characters in the past. Yep. And um. 
you know, we handled, you know, during the... You and I know you and I have handled a couple methods of dark side removal in our own games, yep. but Shibuta proposes a real deep set rules for the removal of dark side points. Um, between sessions, he suggests that a PC wishing to remove dark side points should be forced to meditate for one week in game per dark side point removed. Oh. So the removal of like four DSPs would equate to four weeks of meditation. But he goes even further to impose a penalty to make his players think twice about getting DSPs to begin with. He uses a permanent force point reduction for every dark side point you remove. Huh. I think yeah. that's a little much. Well, you know, my, my take, listen, I've said before, personally, I only believe in allowing the reduction of one DSP between adventures. But if you don't like that, I think there's decent merit to Shibuta's method um, of in terms of you know having that one week per dark side thing. I mean, that could conceivably have a player sit out a session or two while he meditates, you know, and the right. you know the, the, the other characters are doing stuff game time. As far as the permanent force point reduction, though, I mean, that, that's nasty. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right, man, that, that's hard. Yeah. That's yeah, tough. I think it's kind of an effective deterrent, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, it, it would definitely be effective, but I think it's a little over the top. But, you know, that's just Maybe. me. Maybe. But uh, a very interesting take, and uh, glad to share it with you. So thank you very much, Shibuta, and thank you, Seikos, for posting up those house rules. We're glad to share it out there with the rest of the Gamer Nation. And again, if you guys have your own stuff and you want to get out there, head over to the forums, d20radio.com slash forum, and post it up there. It is yep. awesome. We apologize for the Skype issues. Obviously, those are not in our control, so uh, kind of fight through yeah. it with us. Yeah, Skype's been gacking all day today. Yep. That's a shame. Yeah, I know. There's no fun. So let's talk about our book. Let's talk about our book. Let's talk about Threats of the Galaxy. Um, now, we, this, as we started talking about this very briefly last week, and this has been a very controversial title. Um, so let's talk about what we like about it, what we don't like about it, um, the cool stuff, the crazy stuff. We, we mentioned this very briefly uh, at, at the end of last episode, and it's worth mentioning just again. The biggest crazy, I guess, elephant in the room about this um, has been the, the issue with the book's editing. And a lot of people sounded off about it. Um, that uh, There's some estimates that say anywhere from 30 to 40% of the stat blocks in this book are incorrect. Nothing huge, just minor stuff like a base attack bonus might be incorrect, or they're trained in a skill they shouldn't be, okay, stuff like that. Um, but in some instances, it's bigger stuff. You know, they give uh, people talents that they couldn't qualify for, things of that nature. And there's been a lot of hullabaloo about it. And Dave, you'd mentioned your own opinion about this last week. Um, why don't you go ahead and reiterate that? Because I, I, I felt it had some good wisdom to it. I don't remember what it was, quite honestly. <laughs> I'm so freaking well, you were tired. Talking, you were talking about how, like, you know, if if the if is it going to? You basically said, is, is it going to make an appreciable difference? Oh right, right. Okay, I was in, I was thinking there were two things that I that I was talking about about um, you know how we function in the world of being able to storyboard things ahead of time and. And then as we move through our production cycle, we don't, you know, we don't see the quality assurance. We don't see all the stuff on the back end. It's, it's out of our hands already. So we have very little control. So I said, don't blame Rodney. Yeah. The other part was what you were, exactly what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that's it. I mean, and that's, that's kind of my view on it. I th- I've found this to be the most useful resource I've bought for this system yet. I've already used it multiple times. I used it four times in planning my last game for Freak's sake. 
And it is, it's a great resource. I don't give a rat's ass if a base attack bonus is off by one or hit yeah. points or, or, you know, two or three more than they should be or less um, or somebody's trained in a skill. Does what is in that stat block work for the character? Is it balanced for the CL of the encounter? Yes. Then yeah. if that's the answer, great. Then yeah. I'm all cool with it. Yeah. But I'm an iconoclast and that a lot of people tend to flame me because I believe that um, monsters and NPCs should be designed using completely different rules than PCs. Um, I believe there should be two sets of rules. Um, when you try to, uh, I guess, make it the same across the board on both sides of that GM screen, kind of like they did for D&D 3.5, the system will deteriorate itself over time, in my opinion, because you, you know... Basically, if you want to keep things dynamic and allow the GM to have the control to make a good game, I think there should be that you know differing formulas on on the di- both sides of the GM screen, obviously. Yeah. But anyway, that that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, but, and uh, you know differences that are not material in my mind just don't matter. This is true. Now we had a good response though. A post on our forums. Somebody said, you know, well, you know, say don't blame Rodney. Well, he is the author of the book. His name is on it. Um, should he not take responsibility for the quality of it? No. You don't think so? Nope. The publisher should, not the author. Mm. It is the publisher's responsibility to edit, not the author's, um, which is very interesting. So maybe this uh, comes down a little bit more on Watsy than uh, anything else. But uh, I don't know. They've been pumping, pumping almost all their resources into fourth edition's release recently. So uh, Stepchild. Step- redheaded stepchild. That Star Wars has always been redheaded stepchild. We continue, and goddamn, we're proud of it. <laughs> That's right. But let's talk about this book, because I like it. Uh, there's a, a few just, I guess, highlights I want to go through. There's been a lot of favorites in this book um, that I've had and uh, things I've used and things I just can't wait to use. And we talked with, with Rodney about this a few weeks ago. He came on before the book came out and gave us a great preview, um, which you guys can listen to. It was episode 19. And... Um, you know, there's chapters detailing uh, characters, you know, N- NPCs, as well as actual named characters, which honestly, I personally, I think it's great to have them in there. I don't know that I'll ever use them. I think it's cool to see their stats, um, but I don't ever think I'm going to bring you know, Aura Singh, you know, or, or Lumia uh, into uh, into my campaign anytime soon. But, you know, hey, it could happen. But even if you don't use them as the PCs they are, Dave, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that you can, you know, rip that name off there and substitute, you know, Darth, you know, X or whatever, you know, <laughs> your own homebrew is. Yeah. And it'll work just fine. But there's lots of generic characters in here, um, especially in that characters chapter. Chapter, and there's um, a few that really kind of piqued my interest and caught my eye that I just absolutely love. Um, and if you have your books with me, boys and girls, um, go ahead and turn to page 62, where you will find one of my favorite entries that's kind of non-specific, and that is the outlaw tech. And literally, the outlaw tech, I, I just, I don't know, I fell in love with it, and I've actually statted this up as an NPC for my current party to hire out if they needed to, but thankfully they didn't. They had uh, enough skill in their own party to do it. But this is a a scoundrel scout, um, two levels in each. And literally, if I was going to design an outlaw technician, this is exactly how I would do it. Every single feat, every single talent. um, I mean, just fantastic. Uh, You know, they can handle their own in a fight decently, but at the same time, they can... They they can do what they need to do. And I really want to point this out because I get a lot of email and a lot of requests from folks asking for character help. And, uh, you know, hey, what can I do? You know, do this, do that, do this, do that. And a lot of people really like to play skillful characters, but they're worried because it leaves their combat out in the cold. Take a look at this entry. If you look at the feats and the talents, how the uh, the abilities are allocated, 
it is a wonderful example of what to do to make a character that can play both ends of the spectrum and be a generalist and a skillful character, but at the same time can hold their own in a fight. And, uh, and you know, you know it feats like improved defenses, you know, and uh, obviously point-blank shot from the scoundrel levels and such uh, that can really help out. Um, things like hyper-driven, you know, that will allow you to, you know, play that smuggler role, you know, but at the same time you can you know, really fix stuff, you know, the skill focus and skill training is out the wazoo for this character. So I really, really like it. Um, for me, and I don't know, Dave, outlaw technicians, they seem to, for me, kind of to fit that iconic two roles in the Star Wars universe. I don't think there are enough scoundrels out there, um, especially in the, especially in the most recent movies. I don't think there's enough scoundrels in episode one through three. And I think they play an integral role in, your campaign, or they should at least, in the universe, because they have a role. Now, in our campaign, Dave, we have, I guess what you would call, kind of not so much an outlaw tech, but definitely a soldier technician, which yeah. is our Bothan scout, uh, yeah. scoundrel, Orin Co. Um, I mean, handy how too. would you rate his usefulness to the party? I'd say he's handy as pockets on a shirt. There you go. Uh, he, can, he can handle his own, he can fire a blaster when he needs to, but good grief, I mean, he's saved the party's bacon dozens of times. If you have a character like that, make an NPC available to your party, and Outlaw Tech is a great way to do it. Now, my next super favorite, super favorite entry, um, honestly, is one that I'm in agreement with Rodney. It is the Slicer, uh, which is on page 86 of uh, Threads of the Galaxy. And uh, this is just literally a, a fifth-level scoundrel, and I just think it's amazing. It is an absolutely wonderfully designed character, and like, kind of like Rodney says, this is kind of along the same lines. Your party may need an outlaw tech, okay, but more importantly, they're probably going to need a slicer at some point. It's very rare to find a PC that focuses on slicing. And, you know, I mean, in, in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know, the the holonet's everywhere. Um, and you got to have people that know computers that could slice. And this is just a, a wonderfully designed character with the ability to do that. And it's the reason I like it is because it's a wonderful NPC. If you notice, there's a theme here. I'm choosing stuff that's great for GM resources. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but again, this is a wonderful way to model your character after. It's just fantastic. But I also want to talk about what's on the opposite page, page 87 of the slicer, which is the new slicer gear. Now, last week, we covered the computer spike, if you'll recall, um, in Watto's uh, bargain basement. But there are two other wicked pieces of slicer gear that are available, um, one of which is actually not too terribly expensive at all. For 50 creds, it's the Hibaka 2000 mem stick. Um, and literally, it's used by slicers to smuggle info past you know, security and, and whatnot. It's, a, it's just this tiny little piece of hardware that doesn't take up any space. It's just, it's just a memory stick. Um, it, you know, it's not big enough to hold computer programs, but it can hold text, images, videos, and a, you know, about a minute of hollow data. Um, it is a fine size. And when you consider that you know, uh, a hollow recorder is like a kilo and is the size of a fist, um, it's a little hard to smuggle that thing. But this could be slipped into a sock, okay, or a, a, I mean, heck, a power pack slot of a standard blaster pistol. Um, it's got its uses. Um, the other cool thing is literally, um, okay, when you were a kid, Dave, did you ever get the magazines that had like the lock-picking guns in the back that you could order? <laughs> like the little squeeze guns, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Okay, well, this is basically what this is. It's the Electro Ticker, and it's it's uh, a little expensive. It's 1,500 credits per plus two skill bonus that it provides, kind of like the computer spot. And uh, it's a, a single-use item, but when you once you obviously once you use it, it's gone. 
but it's a it's a really really cool item. And whereas a computer spike can help you get into those tricky systems, Electro Tickler can help you pick those tricky locks. So it's very cool. But check it out. There's some really great slicer gear. I just think the slicer is one of the most polished entries in there. If you're looking to make a slicer yourself, I would use this almost as a complete blueprint. And this is, of course, a wonderful, wonderful GM resource. Yep. Well, one other big thing to talk about in the character chapter, Dave, and uh, I know you'd want to talk about it. Intelligence they have of six, I out. hope. Huh? Intelligence of six. Not quite. They have statted out Commander Cody, and uh, very special place. But honestly, they did a beautiful job with Cody. Um, I was very impressed. From the films, obviously, incredibly intelligent tactical officer, and the the stat block is no lie. You can find Cody on page 93 of Threats of the Galaxy. Um, this is an NPC. You can strip the name off of him, put him in, and you'll make his armor Mandalorian, okay? And he would be a badass Mando commander, okay? This is a, a Soldier 7 Officer 5, so it's a CL-12 that with a squad of troopers or thugs or soldiers at his back will kick the crap out of your PCs. Um, this is another thing. If you want a blueprint character, you want to make a, a soldier that moves into, into officer and is kind of that tactical genius, um, this is it. This guy can kick the crap out of you and help everybody else kick the crap out of you. It's just beautifully, beautifully done. And his intelligence, by the way, Dave, is 14. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's smarter than me. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. I'll reserve judgment. Ah, well, you do that. All right. Uh, moving on to the Beast chapter. Ah, uh, um, Yes. There is, is one specific beast that I want to talk about, Dave, because it gave me joy to see it in there, and I will throw it up against you, and you will not know when I do, and you will laugh, and I will laugh, and then you will cry. And do you know what I'm talking about? Sarlacc. The Sarlacc. I was so pleased to see it in there. Um, it's a big boy. Uh, it's a CL-12. Um, and it's just disgustingly awesome. It's just this stationary. It's kind of a cross between an environmental hazard and uh, and a, a beast, I guess you could say, because it's stationary. It doesn't move at all. Um, and every round, it can attack with nine tentacles um, that do like insane damage, and then grab you. And it's got a massive bonus to its its grapple check, and it can grab you and then yank you into its maw. And then once you're inside there, it does an insane amount of damage to you. Um, like two die six of acid damage, crushing damage per round. Um, although you can't attempt like acrobatics or uh, an athletics check to, or, to, or excuse me, a strength check to crawl your way out. Um, it's just disgustingly awesome. Um, and the best part, it has tremor sense, so it automatically senses the location of anything in contact with the ground within a hundred squares. Now, I had not seen tremor sense yet in the game, and it was one of those older mechanics from previous editions I really liked for certain foes, and I'm very glad the Sarlacc has it. Most notably because I like to make my own monsters sometimes, my own beasts, and obviously I'm not just going to make something up out of the blue. I like to know that the mechanic exists, and tremor sense is a darn, darn good one. Um, so that's pretty freaking cool. So what do you think, Dave? You think uh, Salura could crawl out of a Sarlacc's gullet? Yep, and then he'd leave about four grenades behind. <laughs> well, that might uh, that might uh, do the trick. The thing is, it is not exactly hard to hit. Uh, it's got a reflex defense of seven. Yeah, I would imagine being stationary and, and just basically big a, having a big mouth. Yeah, as big as it is. Yeah, most definitely. 
but um, it's pretty cool. They kind of go into the mythos of the Sarlacc too, and you know, like, and you can get this on Wikipedia as well. But you know, they don't. It's, there's aside from the one on Tatooine, they're all over the place. They usually like marshy ground, so that's kind of be kind of a creepy encounter for something like Dagobah or something. Yeah, that'd be cool. Very cool. Well, the other thing that I really wanted to share with you guys regarding the creatures in this book is probably one of the most useful mechanics available in this book, and I used it um, just our past session. And it is on page 130 of Threats of the Galaxy, and right where the uh, the Womp Rats are. And it is the ruling for packs and swarms. There have been a lot of house rules out there. People saying, you know, okay, well, how do you make swarms in SWSE? How do you, you know, make like packs of creatures? You know, because that was a pretty common thing in like D and D and in the prior um, RCR edition of Star Wars. And uh, they have done it here. It is beautiful. It is elegant, and like everything else in the system, it follows Kiss to a T. Um, basically, and I, Dave, you recall our last adventure, I did this with, um, with Minox. Yeah, you we did. Had, uh, we had two Minox swarms that, that hit you guys, and you actually had a zero-G encounter on the, on the outside of his ship, which was kind of fun. Yeah, it pissed me off. Uh, <laughs> it's because you couldn't hit anything. I know. <laughs> zero-G, not fun. Um, but usually, uh, packs and swarms, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a, a template that you add to an existing creature. Um, and that's pretty much it. It's, it's just very easy. And it tells you, you know, usually it's two or three or four um, that move and fight as a single unit. Um, it occupies the same space, and it's treated as a single creature for the purpose of combat. Um, although, when you're describing it, it, it's a cluster of several creatures. Um, so, for, so, like, for example, I mean, like, my Minox Swarm was a single creature. It attacked on its own. They damaged it on its own. But it was, you know, four or five Minox just swarming together and clustering, more or less. Um, typically, a pack or a swarm has a CL that is two higher than the base creature's CL. And to create it, literally, you can take any creature in the book, um, you, you increase its size by one category, and you apply all relevant modifiers by doing that. They're going to get a bonus to, to strength and a minus to dexterity. Uh, you're going to double the creature's hit points, and you're going to increase its damage threshold by 10. And the big change is that all melee attacks are considered melee area attacks. So when it makes a melee attack, it affects all squares within reach, which is really freaking cool. Um, however, it doesn't ever risk hitting an allied creature by doing so. Um, and all ranged attacks um, that it makes, which are rare, have like a one square splash. And the big thing, though, is that any area attacks that you do against it deal two dice of extra damage against a pack or a swarm, which is, is pretty freaking cool. But I could see applying this not just to beast, Dave, but to like droids, like buzz droids, or even like, you know, small, you know, assassin droids or other things like that. If, if it's a, a decently sized creature, I could easily see making a swarm of these. It could make for a pretty interesting encounter. It'd be cool. Yeah. Speaking of buzz it droids. Yeah, buzzwords would be cool. Taking it even to the next level, if you applied it to, uh, if you applied it to characters, you know, like a swarm of you know thugs, maybe a mob just kind of running towards you, uh, of three or four guys, I could see doing that as well. A little out of the box, but it could definitely work. A swarm of stormtroopers. <laughs> yes, although they don't usually swarm; they usually just stand there and get shot. Yeah, a pack <laughs> of stormtroopers. Pack of stormtroopers. Well, let's talk about droids, shall we? Yep. Okay. Um, moving to the droid chapter, um, there's a few droids that I think are just awesome. Um, one of them is right there at the beginning of the chapter on page 140, and it is the B3 battle droid, which is this large behemoth. It's like the next evolution of the, the B-series battle droids. And uh, it's a CL3, um, which actually, I think it's actually a little uh, low of an encounter rating, considering what all this thing can do. I mean, it's got two heavy repeating blasters on it, a flamethrower, and a missile launcher. 
Um, and it's large and can do all this other crazy ass crap too. Um, it's it's you know it's got obviously all the an amazing amount of armor um, and things of that nature, but uh, it, it packs a mighty wallop. And uh, you throw a couple of these at your players, they're going to be hurting really really bad. Um, I know Salura would probably go down in a flash if he took on several of these, at least at his current level. Um, although the, I don't know if that would stop him. What's a, a Droidica? Isn't a Droidica? It's a CL4. That's what I thought it was a 4 back. It might have been a 5, but yeah. yeah. But in my opinion, this thing's more lethal than a Droidica, and it's a CL3. The only difference is a Droidica has shields. That's its big deal. Right. Um, but I mean, this thing has the same two two blasters, a little bit better, with better attack option than a Droidica does, plus a flamethrower, plus a missile launcher. Um, it's pretty pretty disgusting little uh, combatant there, huh. and I, I do I do recommend it. Um, and then on page one forty two is we were just talking about the ubiquitous Buzz Droid. <laughs> I I loved seeing the Buzz Droid in here, but and then again I'm a huge fan of space encounters and uh, starship encounters. I think they're a lot of fun. And the Buzz Droid, which of course was that little ball thing that attached itself to the ships uh, in the beginning of Episode Three and started chewing through their hulls, um, it was it was pretty pretty freaking cool. And what's great I love about the uh, the the Buzz Droids is they don't actually have attacks per se. They literally fly to your ship and attach themselves to it, and they're their only attack is they have a they have a vibro saws obviously and a plasma cutting torch and literally they just tear your ship apart. Um, I absolutely love it and I can see applying the the swarm template to this and you could just have oodles of fun in space and make your players hate you horribly. Yep. What if what if your player what what if you guys had been fighting these instead of Minox? Ion. Well, yeah, well, true, and ion grenades wouldn't. God, do a crap load considering its area damage. This is very true. Ah, see? Tactical thinking from GM Dave. There you go. I'm very impressed, Dave. Considering how tired I am, I'm really surprised. <laughs> well, the other entry in the Dread chapter that's worth mentioning um, has probably gotten the most play because it's really freaking cool, is the Replica Droid. Yeah. And this is on page 152. Um, and it's actually... Instead of just making a droid, they actually statted it out in a cool little sidebar here where it's like a new droid species. So if you actually, as a, as a player character, wanted to play one of these you, as, a, as kind of a species, you could do this off the bat. And it's really cool. They get a plus two to strength, plus two to dex, um, minus two to charisma. Because um, they're kind of, you know, they're made to look like organic beings, but they don't quite fit in right. Um, their size varies on whatever they're trying to replicate, whatever species. Um, so does their speed. Um, and what's really cool is they can be constructed at creation with two droid systems. Um, and you have a, a few choices, like integrated comlink, dark vision, improved sensor pass- package, diagnostics, and even internal storage, um, translator unit, stuff like that. And like any droid, you can upgrade yourself later. Um, we had a question about this on the forums, and I think it's totally acceptable to upgrade yourself, obviously, just within reason and GM discretion. Obviously, if you have a gyroscopic mount and a blaster attached to your forearm, I think you know your illusion of being a, a humanoid is probably going to, to end rather quickly. Um, they also get a conditional bonus feat. If they're trained in deception, they gain skill-focused deception and um, automatic languages equal to the species they're copying. I think it's really, really cool. Um, so if you're looking for a real good twist, a lot of players have been wanting to play droids but haven't been wanting to go through the whole hassle of creating a droid. You can use this replica droid species, more or less, and get it taken care of. And I really, really like that. Well, there's a lot of equipment scattered throughout this book. Um, and you know what, Dave? I don't think we're going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that Watt, I'll get to it. 
we'll let Wada get to it. We already talked about some slicer gear. I want to leave some good stuff. But uh, the last big point I want to talk about, there's lots of cool talents in this book. And they're scattered throughout the book. Um, and uh, we want to talk about a couple that really pique our interest. Um, the first is going to be on page 13 of the Threats of the Galaxy book, which is the Malkite Poisoner talent tree. And basically, this is a it's, – it's not printed on here. This is one of the errated things. This is a scoundrel talent, folks. And literally, it allows you to poison – um, non-energy slashing or piercing weapons, add, add poison to them and poison your target. The mechanic is incredibly simple. Prior systems had these incredibly complex save DCs and crafting DCs to make the poisons, you know, and it was kind of a pain in the ass. This is just pretty simple. They just say, you know what? You make the poison. Um, you attack with it. You, you make an attack, 1d20 plus your heroic level um, against the target's fortitude defense, and if it succeeds, the target takes damage, depending on your on your level as well, and moves down the condition track. Um, and the poison continues to attack each round until it misses, um, kind of when the victim kind of shakes it off, so to speak, or the victim gets a treat injury check. And it just gets better and better as you go. There's this basic poison technique, and all the others allow you to make poisons that do different things and better things, and it's... Um, it's pretty unique. It's kind of a new take on on the scoundrel. If you're going to make a melee scoundrel and you want to, you know, go that assassin route, it's pretty freaking cool. Um, another great talent tree that caught my interest was the mercenary talent tree on page 57, um, and it had basically, if you're making the support soldier, this is the way to go. Um, combined fire um, is just absolutely fantastic. Um, mercenary determination, mercenary teamwork. These allow you to gain massive bonuses when working together with allies um, for stuff like aid and other actions and bonus on damage. But the coolest talent in here, and one that just has made people drool, is Mercenary's Grit. Now check this out, Dave. When you're affected by any debilitating condition, you can convert the condition's modifier from a penalty to a bonus for one round as a swift action. And at the end of your turn, you move minus one step along the condition track. So basically, it's pulling out your last reserve. So if I'm at minus five on the condition track, as a swift action, you know, and I get minus five to everything, I can turn that minus five into a plus five for one full round, and then I move a step down the condition track. All right? If I'm at negative 10 on the condition track, I can, I can turn that negative into a plus and get a plus 10. So if I'm getting the crap kicked out of me for a single round, I just go oh, and pull on my inner reserves and I get a plus 10 to hit and all that, all that jazz. But then again, next round, obviously, I'd go unconscious. But what a cool talent, not only flavor-wise, but to really make a character that is uh, – it really has that mercenary grit to it. It's just what the talent says, basically, uh, yeah. pulling it out at the last stop, that kind of indomitable, unstoppable foe. Yeah, that's, probably, that's, that's pretty cool. I like it. It's really wicked, and uh, the mercenary talent tree itself is just wonderful if you've got the the whole you know combat thing going on, um, which is very cool. And the the last talent I want to talk about it's not really a talent tree; it's just a single talent, and it's underneath the the elite soldier entry, um, which is on page ninety five of the book. There's a brand new soldier talent. It's under the commando talent tree, and Dave, this is the bomb. OMG, <laughs> it is really cool. Uh, the talent is called Hard Target. Now, it's got a prerequisite of Tough as Nails, okay, which is a pretty common soldier talent. This allows you to catch your second wind as a reaction instead of a swift action. So you can do this when it's not your turn. So if somebody hits you and is going to drop you from the hit, as a reaction, you can catch your second wind 
and you know heal your con score or your you know your your uh, quarter your hit points whatever's more. That is one of the most useful talents I've seen for a meat wall. It's pretty wicked actually. Um, what do you think? I'd say at the rate at which uh, Salura charges in the battle and then takes a minus two to my reflex and all that. Uh, I would say yes, it would be mostly fantastic if I go this route. I would probably pick up this talent without saying. Yeah, it's it's very cool. It's definitely my probably my favorite talent in the book, um, and it really fits that build extremely well. In terms of the book itself, guys, and I just we just highlighted on some some just cool stuff that we found. There's obviously way too much just to go through bit by bit, but. What I've discovered in this book is that there's a lot of a lot of basic generic threats that can be applied any way you choose. And when you're using this reference, when you're using this material, think about it like this, and this is the best way to use it. A lot of us became inured in prior Wizards of the Coast releases, especially with Dungeons and Dragons, that you can't basically make a threat on the fly. You know, it's like, oh, well, let's play a... I want to use a, a, a Dragon Spawn Red Fire Belcher. You know, well, I don't have the book for that. Crap. You know, they were so minutiae with every single threat they made. There were millions of them. What this has done, in contrary to their prior releases, has given you this generic stuff like Slicer, Smuggler, Pirate Captain. Not, you know, it, it just very generic stuff. So you can add what you need to to it. You can add names. You can take this very generic stuff and it can apply across multiple encounters in multiple situations. Um, multiple agencies, multiple, you know, crime lords or syndicates or, you know, military organizations, mercenaries, anything. Um, it just works beautifully. So when you're looking at the the threats that are in this book, look at it from that generalist perspective. I've made notes for myself next to each one saying, okay, I can apply this in this situation, this situation, this situation, this, you know, this elite soldier, God, this would be incredible for, you know, uh, an elite stormtrooper, a clone trooper, a Mando, um, a mercenary, um, you know, a fringe mercenary, a pirate uh, brute, you know, stuff like that. If you, and I, literally there's, there's little sticky notes sticking outside of my book that have references based on different types of encounters where these will apply. And the possibilities are just endless. It's amazing. Yep. Well, Dave, what don't we like about this book? Index. Because there are some things we don't like. No index. No index. Yeah, I was a little upset about the fact there was no index. There's a table of contents that's spiffy, but if I just want to look things up alphabetically by page number, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, I mean, it's, it's not, it wouldn't even be half a page of an index on here or a page of index on here. Um, I think they could have thrown it in. I know they have sp- pace, you know, uh, page limitations and all that, but... But one thing I really wish they had, and the reason I really wish they had it is because of the second dislike I have about this book, is that the talents and the equipment and the feats that are new and in this book are scattered throughout it. They are in good places because they they are where they are referenced in certain stat blocks. Okay, so if, if this new talent is referenced in this one stat block, well, you'll see the talent right there above it. But it's one of those things that I have no way to quickly turn to it. I have no way to, to look at it. So... That's the other thing I really kind of wish was missing from this book. But on our forums already, there is there are fans that have already published um, indexes for this and uh, have even done so in the uh, little square you know, nine by nine format of the book. So you could even print it off PDF and paste it in the back of your book if you would so like. Um, so not too big, just you know, little 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 gripe, little disgrunt. And yeah. uh, that's all right though. Yeah, that's all right. So that's pretty much what I got to say about it. 
Um, and that is basically our, our brief look at Threats of the Galaxy, guys. Um, I give it two thumbs up, um, even though my little minor dislikes. Uh, it's still, hands down, one of the best supplements I've bought for an RPG in some time. And uh, I think you should at least check it out and consider getting it for yourselves. Yep, me too. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Dave, what do you say we move to a uh, a more refined individual and, and get his opinions on the state of the galaxy and the world at large. Um, an individual okay. that was not in Threats of the Galaxy, though he probably should have been. Yeah. Um, if you think we can perhaps attempt to contact him. I, I, I frankly don't know. I don't know about that. No. We'll see. I'm not in the mood to deal with him today. TK421. TK421. Well, never mind. Twenty docking bay hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. Brought to you today by Mostly Joe. Yeah, it's a shame we couldn't get a hold of TK. He's never at his post. He sucks. I hate him. Probably has a busted transmitter. Probably. Yeah. Well, yeah, as Dave said, this Daytona Docking Bay is brought to us by Mostly Joe, who actually made this suggestion last month. Attacks of Opportunity. Uh, Mostly Joe asks, What would you rule if a Force user uses Move Object on someone to take them out of a threatened square, thereby triggering an Attack of Opportunity? Uh, fourth Edition D&D actually addresses this as a shift and says it does not trigger an Attack of Opportunity. But does Raw do the same for Saga? Uh, was this errated? Attacks of opportunity are often one of the biggest gripes I get from new players. Maybe you can touch on them in an upcoming podcast. Yeah. Great suggestion, Joe. So let's talk about the humble attack of opportunity, or AOO, as I will refer to it. Uh, as per page 155 of the core rulebook, if an enemy moves out of a square adjacent to you or performs an action that forces him to let down his guard, you can make a single immediate attack against that enemy even if you've already acted during the round. This is called an attack of opportunity. That is the basic description, Joe, that I would use to kind of explain to your new players what it is. Because I often have that too. You know, what, what exactly is an attack of opportunity? Um, literally, basically, if your foe opens himself up or does something stupid during combat, <laughs> you get a free swipe at him. <laughs> All right? Uh, this concept saw its widest broadening in games when it was included in the 3rd edition D&D rule set. And, and even then, you know, it often became confusing for the beginner player. So, there are some rules, however, to follow with Attack of Opportunity. And let's talk about them. Uh, rules for the attacker. If you are making an Attack of Opportunity, one, you must be adjacent to your foe. You must be aware of your foe. If uh, you're blinded and you can't see them, you don't exactly know they're there, you really can't, you know, make an Attack of Opportunity if they leave space, basically. Uh, two, you can only make Attacks of Opportunity with certain weapons. Um, melee weapons, and that includes natural weapons, but not unarmed strikes unless you have the martial arts one feet. Pistols, uh, range weapons you can make attacks with in uh, SWSC, and this was a huge change from prior editions, and one which I personally like a lot. 
pistols, uh, weapons with folded stocks, and as Rodney once clarified for us, um, anything with a folded stock is treated as a pistol in terms of proficiency and range, so that makes good sense. And carbines, um, even with stock out, you can use a carbine to make an attack of opportunity, which is one of the benefits of having a carbine, which is pretty freaking cool. Rule three, you can only make one attack of opportunity in a round. Uh, and rule four, you can't make attacks of opportunity if you're flat-footed, i.e. you haven't acted yet in the encounter. And with that, let's take a moment to talk about combat reflexes. Oh, yes. Which is a great feat, um, and this is only a class bonus feat for a Jedi and a soldier, by the way. Everyone else will have to take it as a, you know, uh, as a character feat. Um, it lets you break a couple of the above rules. Namely, with combat reflexes, you can make multiple attacks of opportunity during a round, equal to your dex bonus. And you can make attacks of opportunity if you're flat-footed, and that's pretty cool. There was a lot of munchkinism in the last edition and in 3.5 D&D uh, regarding people that would make these combat reflex machines where they would uh, wade into combat, wait for their opponents to do something to provoke attacks of opportunity, and they would just wail away. Um, we don't really much have that in this edition, thankfully. And lastly, uh, you can only make one attack of opportunity per provoking action, even with combat reflexes, younglings. In other words, you can swipe at somebody multiple. You, you cannot swipe at somebody multiple times for doing the same thing. Okay, and one movement is considered one action. So if for some reason you happen to have a reach or something to that effect, um, if you're a GM and you have a you know controlling an NPC or a beast that has reach, and uh, somebody provokes an attack of opportunity from leaving its space, it only gets one attack, even though it might move through multiple threatened squares. For example. So rules for the target, and maybe that's you. Um, if you are the target of an attack of opportunity, you provoke an AOO by, well, one, moving out of a threatened square, okay? Unless, Dave, unless you withdraw. use the withdraw action. Yes. Um, the withdraw action uh, you is, is a move action, and you move half your speed. Um, the only rule is your first square of movement has to take you out of the threatened area. Or you can use the acrobatic skill to tumble out of the threatened area and avoid attack of opportunity. Um, the other thing that can provoke an attack of opportunity is performing an action that distracts you from defending yourself. Um, making an unarmed attack without martial arts. Uh, aiming. Uh, retrieving a stored item. Picking something up. Reloading. Uh, entering an enemy square. Anything that distracts you, uh, such as using a computer terminal or something to that effect, per your GM's discretion. So, considering these wonderful facts, to mostly Joe's question, the key here, Joe is that you provoke an attack of opportunity for m moving out of a threatened square, not being moved out of a threatened square. Um, Raving Dork's FAQ of dev rulings on the Gleemax forums does specify that you don't provoke an attack of opportunity for movement unless you initiate that movement, unless the rules say otherwise. So, in your particular example, using uh, you know maybe force thrust or move object to move someone out of a threatened area would not provoke attacks of opportunities because they were not initiating the action. And honestly, if it wasn't that way, every melee machine and munchkin out there would just pick up Bantha Rush and get the free attack of opportunity when knocking their opponent out of their own threatened area. You would see that every single attack. So, oh, yeah. We don't, and that's the reason why. So that's the way it works. I hope that answered your questions. And if you guys have any more questions, subjects for D20 Docking Bay, you're welcome to get on the forums and post them at uh, d20radio.com slash forums. Give us a call on the loser line, 206-600-5872, or email myself, gmchris at d20radio.com, or gmdave at d20radio.com. It's a good thing. It's always a good thing. And plus, 
you know, the day after Father's Day, lots of guys listening to this. Some of you may be fathers, some of you may not, but happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to my dad, who's not listening. (laughs) (laughs) And to my dad, who's also not listening. Oh, God. But they fit our demographic because they're not listening to Order 66 podcast. Oh, that's very true. That's very true. If, if they're uh, if they're bumpers say anything, they're not listening either. Yeah, you never know. Never know. Well, yep. guys, next week we're going to continue with our prestige class discussion, and I uh, hope you guys will tune in for it. We'll have some more crunchy, crunchish, crunchishness, crunchy, crunchy bits of, of goodness to digest, and uh, hopefully some good uh, fluff along the way as well. That's right. So with that, I wish you peace, love, and good gaming. That's right, boys and girls. Keep them dice rolling. Oops. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at StarWars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at Wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. Dave's a tired boy. Almost perfect. I'm one hour, 11 minutes into it, and then... That's a shame, Dave. It's an absolute shame. Brain fart.